Debbie Collier made a purchase at a family dollar in Clayton, Georgia around 3 p.m. on Saturday, September the 10th. Around 5 p.m., Amanda Bearden, Debbie's daughter, noticed that she had received a text message from Debbie that was sent at 3.17 p.m. The message read, They are not going to let me go. Love you. There is a key to the house in the blue flower pot by the door. This message would be the last time Amanda ever heard from her mother. 22 hours later, Debbie's body was found at the bottom of a ravine, stripped of most of her clothing and partially burned. The mystery had just gotten started. Welcome to the Beyond Evil podcast, where we discuss and dissect the most mysterious, terrifying, and mind-bending cases from all over the world. Before we start, we would like to send our sincere condolences to the loved ones of Debbie Collier, who fell victim to the abominable acts described in this case. Athens, Georgia is a college town known as the home of the University of Georgia. The community takes great pride in its college football team, the Georgia Bulldogs. Debbie Collier, aged 59, lived in Athens, Georgia with her husband, 67-year-old Steve. The couple had been married for nine and a half years and had children from previous relationships. Debbie had two children, Amanda Bearden, aged 36, and Jeffrey Bearden, aged 33. Steve also had two children and two grandchildren. Debbie worked as the front office manager for eight years at the Carriage House Realty, a company based in Athens. She had an excellent working relationship with all of her co-workers and made many friends. Debbie's friends and family described her as a loving wife, mother, sister, grandmother, and friend. The joys of her life were her grandkids and growing various plants. What came about in September of 2022 was beyond anyone's imagination. It was a wet and muggy day in Habersham County, Georgia, about an hour north of Athens on September 11, 2022, a Sunday at 12.44 p.m., when the police found Debbie's body. Police officers found her body at the bottom of a ravine near Tallulah Falls, Georgia. She was partially naked, lying on her back with burn marks on her abdomen, grasping at a small tree. Debbie's vehicle was spotted along the highway leading to the woods. She was driving a black minivan that was found unlocked and abandoned. The family and friends were shocked and devastated when they learned of her horrifying death. Debbie had just recently celebrated her 59th birthday on September the 2nd. The last person to see Debbie alive was her husband, Steve, around 9 p.m. on Friday, September the 9th, when they retired to their separate rooms for the night. Steve went to work the following morning, leaving the house before 9 a.m., when he left the house, Debbie's rental car, a black Chrysler Pacifica van, was still in the driveway. Debbie had been involved in a minor car accident about a month prior, which left her vehicle needing repair, requiring her to use a rental car from Enterprise for the time being. Steve worked from 9 a.m. until 4 p.m. parking cars for the University of Georgia Bulldog football game, which was scheduled to begin at 4 p.m. Upon returning home, Steve found Debbie and the minivan gone. He had assumed she had gone out to buy food, a typical Saturday errand for Debbie, and thought nothing of it. That is, until Amanda, his stepdaughter, came over with the alarming news. Amanda told Steve about the text message that she had received from Debbie. After sharing the unsettling text, Amanda went upstairs to check her mother's room. She found her mother's purse, credit cards, and driver's license. 
Now concerned about the whereabouts of his wife, who was not known to leave the house without taking her purse, Steve called 911 at 6 p.m. to file a missing persons report and to have someone come by the home. After the phone call, a police officer soon arrived at Steve's home. From there, Steve and Amanda re-explained what they knew about Debbie's disappearance. Amanda also showed the officer the odd messages that she had received. Debbie had sent Amanda two very odd texts. The first was via Venmo, which showed Debbie had sent her $2,385. The second message read, They are not going to let me go. Love you. There is a key to the house inside the blue flower pot by the door. After receiving the message, Amanda told the officers that she attempted to call Debbie many times, but there was no answer. Desperately trying to find a way to track down her mother, Amanda called Enterprise on Sunday morning, September the 11th. She pretended to be Debbie, saying that she was stuck on the side of the road and needed roadside assistance. The Enterprise representative provided her with the rental agreement information so she could get help. Immediately after getting off the phone with Enterprise, Amanda called roadside assistance, telling them anything that she could think of to get someone to use the GPS to locate the minivan. She was told, however, that the minivan did not have the equipment to be located by GPS. When roadside assistance failed, Amanda made two calls to the athens Clark County Police Station. During the first call, Amanda asked to speak to the detective handling her mother's case. The officer asked Amanda if she had further information to add to the case, and Amanda said, I sure do. Amanda was informed that the detective she was asking for was not on duty at that time, but she would be transferred to a patrol officer who could speak with her. Amanda was asked to provide any new information she had before being handed over to the police officer. Amanda quickly corrected herself, saying that she didn't mean to claim that she had an update, but wanted to talk to someone to see if there was anything she could do to help. Amanda provided the rental agreement number to Debbie's rental car, hoping the police could use that information to track it down. During the call, you could hear Amanda becoming increasingly emotional, questioning why no one had attempted to track down the van by GPS. During the second call, Amanda asked for a police officer named Johnson, saying that she was returning his call. Amanda also stated that she had information about Debbie's iCloud account that also might help find her. Along with Amanda, Debbie's sister, Diane Shirley, who lives in Alabama, called the athens Clark County Police Station to gain information about her sister's disappearance. Diane informed the police officer that Debbie was involved in a car accident with an ex-con about a month earlier. She explained that a can of paint had flown off the back of a truck and had covered Debbie's car. The driver of the truck happened to be on parole and asked Debbie not to tell the cops handling the incident because he was driving and that had been a stipulation of his parole. The information was given by Diane about the accident from Amanda. About two hours after Amanda had called the police station, a representative with Sirius XM contacted the Athens police station and informed them that they had pinged Debbie's vehicle and had its general location. A representative stated that they believed the minivan was either stopped or at least pulled over on a roadside somewhere in Rabin County. After receiving the information, Sergeant Johnson called Amanda, stating that they believed they may have found Debbie's vehicle and asked if Debbie would have any reason to drive up to Rabin County. Rabin County is located in the most northeastern part of Georgia and includes part of Tallulah Falls, the city close to where Debbie's body would eventually be found. Terrified for her mother, Amanda headed straight to Rabin County, which took about an hour and a half from their home in Athens. On the way there, Amanda received another call from Sergeant Johnson. 
After pulling over to answer the phone, Amanda glanced down at her Waze GPS device and noticed two police vehicles were close to her location. Sergeant Johnson informed Amanda that they had located Debbie's vehicle near a campsite but did not have a specific position for her to go to. After getting off the phone, Amanda googled nearby campsites. She drove past the two police vehicles and immediately recognized Debbie's rental car on the side of the road nearby. It was parked off of Georgia State Route 15, northbound near Tallulah Falls, about 60 miles from Debbie's home in Athens, Georgia. Sergeant Ethan Neal from Habersham County was notified by the 911 dispatch of the location of the rental car and headed in that direction. He asked Officer Dakota Foster from the Tallulah Falls Police Department to meet him at the scene. After discovering the vehicle, one of the police officers, Sergeant Neal from Tallulah Falls, informed Habersham County detectives that he believed he had seen the exact vehicle parked there around 5 p.m. the day before. However, Sergeant Neal didn't report it because it wasn't out of the ordinary to find cars parked in that area. Neither the minivan's model nor plate was described to law enforcement officers at that time, so they had no idea to look for the vehicle. The van was found abandoned and unlocked. Investigators began asking Amanda about her mother and why she might abandon the vehicle. She explained that her mother had no history of mental illness or suicidal tendencies. Amanda also said that Debbie had a bad back and probably couldn't have made it very far from the vehicle on foot. Once the Habersham County K-9 unit arrived on the scene, they began to search the nearby wooded areas. One officer came across a red tote bag near an uprooted tree. At the base of the tree, there seemed to be the remnants of a fire. Further down the embankment, officers discovered a partially burnt tarp that appeared blue. Next to it, they found the body of a partially nude female lying on her back, grasping onto a small tree with her right hand. The body had burn marks on the abdomen, and the officer described it as charred. The body was quickly identified as that of Debbie Collier. At 3.06 p.m., Sergeant Neal established the crime scene, and Debbie's body was taken to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation's crime lab after the completion of the initial investigation. Other evidence found at the scene was Debbie's purse and her cell phone. When Steve had made the initial 911 call about Debbie being missing, he said that Amanda had found her purse with her credit cards in the house, making it unclear why she had a purse at the crime scene. With Debbie's body recovered, the investigation turned from a missing persons case into a homicide investigation. After the police discovered Debbie's body, they began working on search warrants and subpoenas for family members and looking for any information which would help them find out what happened to Debbie from the time she was last seen until her body was discovered. Steve's alibi about working from 9 a.m. until 4 p.m. on Saturday checked out. Since the investigation began, a couple of surveillance videos had shown Debbie driving around in her rental car on Saturday, September the 10th. Traffic cameras near the Tallulah Falls School caught Debbie's rental car heading onto the highway around 2.17 p.m. on the 10th. Surveillance videos from a family dollar in Clayton, Georgia, showed Debbie entering the establishment around 2.54 p.m. and then leaving at 3.09. From the camera above the register, Debbie is seen purchasing a blue tarp, a lighter, a tote bag, and a rain poncho. Some of these items were found at the crime scene. Nothing about Debbie's behavior in the video was suggestive of any type of distress. She appeared calm as she checked out. In the video, Debbie is seen dressed in all red, wearing a Georgia Bulldogs football jersey. 
After returning to her vehicle, parking lot cameras show that Debbie sat in the minivan for about 10 minutes and then drove away at 3.19 p.m. It is believed that Debbie sent the peculiar text to Amanda and the Venmo transaction during those 10 minutes. Though the video shows Debbie purchasing items found at the crime scene, Jeffrey, Debbie's son, was not convinced that the woman in the video was his mother. I have a lot of concerns about if that was my mom in the actual video because that doesn't actually appear of like her posture, Jeffrey told a New York Post reporter. I don't know why my mom was there. It doesn't make sense to me why she was in Clayton, especially that there is a Dollar General that she frequently visited that was less than a mile from her home in Athens. Besides sharing the information from the surveillance videos, the police have shared little to no information regarding any findings or potential suspects. However, various news investigations had uncovered possible evidence and clues in the case. On September 21st, 10 days after Debbie's body was found, the New York Post claimed that they had spoken to a neighbor of Steve and Debbie. The Friday night before Debbie disappeared, the neighbor claimed to have heard a commotion in the house. The neighbor further stated, someone comes to visit on the weekends and in the evenings, and there's loud screaming and fighting. The neighbor said this visitor was a young woman. A few days after the discovery, Fox News reporters were at the crime scene and they stumbled upon an unfired bullet about 20 or 30 yards away. The team handed over the evidence to investigators. One of them was a former Miami-Dade detective, Pat Diaz, who claimed the bullet was an important piece of evidence that one of the suspects could have dropped. Nineteen days after the discovery of Debbie's body, Habersham County Sheriff Jody Terrell held a press conference where he and investigator George Kaysen provided information and answered questions regarding the case. However, they stated that there were still details about the case they could not share to avoid any potential suspects from getting a hold of the information or jeopardizing the case. During the press conference, it was stated that the autopsy and toxicology reports on Debbie's body were still pending. The only information regarding to harm to Debbie were the burn marks on her abdomen. Police stated at that time and made it clear that they believed Debbie was murdered and they did believe it was deliberate and personal and not a random act of violence. Since Steve had a solid alibi for his whereabouts on the day that Debbie went missing, the only other family member to investigate was Amanda. Amanda had moved back to Athens with her boyfriend Andrew just two days before her mother went missing. She had been living near her brother in a rundown apartment complex in Maryland. Amanda claimed that she made the move back to Georgia because she was missing her mother and could no longer handle the horrible living conditions she was dealing with in that apartment. Furthermore, she had a falling out with her brother, so she wanted to live near the one member of her family who was always there for her. As it turns out, Amanda and Andrew have a history of domestic violence arrests. During domestic disputes, Andrew had accused Amanda of stealing his money to buy drugs. At one point, Andrew had a restraining order forbidding him from going anywhere near Amanda. Andrew also had a history of arrest which included a misdemeanor DUI, reckless driving, and a possession of marijuana charge on top of the domestic violence towards Amanda. Amanda also had a history of arrests for battery, falsifying a drug test, and making a false police report for claiming that Andrew had broken into her home when they were actually living there together. Amanda had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder around August of 2021. 
Regarding her and Andrew, Amanda claimed that the media had misrepresented their relationship, saying most of their issues fall back on the fact that she was bipolar and had used drugs to self-medicate a few times. With their past issues, Amanda and Andrew have expressed their fears for being blamed in Debbie's death. Andrew told a news reporter, We sleep with stuff in front of our front door and our back door because we didn't have anything to do with this. We are scared ourselves. We had nothing to do with this, so we're trying to protect ourselves at this point. Their concerns were justified since they had become primary suspects not only according to police, but also on the news, social media, and even among Amanda's relatives. One of the primary reasons investigators targeted Amanda for the murder of Debbie was because of the accusations that came from her family. According to Amanda, a key family member accused her of murder. Amanda went through a traumatic interrogation with an investigator who flat out accused her of murdering her mother. Amanda told the investigator that she would happily provide her DNA without a lawyer present to prove her innocence. The day after Amanda's intense interrogation, police went to the house with a search warrant to which Amanda provided her DNA. Andrew also provided his DNA a couple of days later. Debbie's son, Jeffrey, had openly admitted that he does not trust the company that his sister keeps. I do not think my sister has the capacity to hurt my mom. She was my mom's lifeline. But I don't trust the people that my sister hangs out with, and that's my concern. As time went on and the case remained open, several family members, social media users, and YouTubers harassed Amanda and Andrew, claiming that they had murdered Debbie. Jeffrey had requested multiple times that his family have some peace and some respect from the accusations flooding the Internet over Debbie's death, saying his family had suffered enough and they just wanted their space to grieve over their loss, saying, Please put down your bows and arrows and stop hunting my family. Soon after the request to the Internet to back off, Jeffrey, however, returned to social media on Saturday, October the 26th, to express his concerns about the people handling his mother's case. Jeffrey had an unpleasant conversation with Sheriff Joey Terrell three days earlier. He decided to share his experience on Facebook. Jeffrey did so by posting this statement, I made the poor decision today to reach out to Habersham County Law Enforcement after several attempts and requests to be brought up to date on any information shared regarding my mother's case, Debbie Collier, I found myself on the phone with the Habersham County Sheriff, Joey Terrell, to express my concerns. My goal in the conversation was to request to be updated on any press briefings, releases, and other pertinent information since my other attempts were not panning out as planned. I was met with a sheriff who did not empathize with my situation, my concerns for my personal and family's safety after being doxxed online, or potential leaks coming out of his office despite several media outlets claiming sources in his own department. He instead used his time to snicker and laugh at my attempts to discuss my concerns and to tell me directly that he wasn't trying to hang up on me when pressing him on his office's actions. Additionally, he claimed that some of their errors regarding poor communication came from short staffing. But he did remind me that the press has the right to free speech. Well, so do I. So I feel compelled to share my experience with the sheriff because I hung up on him abruptly after he continued to snicker despite my request for him not to laugh at my situation.
Unfortunately, the elected sheriff's attitude and lack of understanding does not give me faith or confidence in their ability to handle her deliberate and personal death, nor does his inability to understand my concerns regarding leaks of information that I assume only known by those directly working with the investigation. I am no longer feeling emboldened. Now I feel really stuck in a hard place, and I'm asking for the Internet's help in this situation to remind me how much people actually care and love for my mother, Debbie Collier. After sharing that extensive message on Facebook, Jeffrey posted a video on Saturday, October 29th to again ask people on the Internet for help. Jeffrey says to the perpetrator who murdered Debbie, I'm not going to stop until you are in jail or on death row. In late October, investigators claimed that they had discovered information or evidence that showed Debbie's death could have been an act of suicide. However, they did not disclose what those findings were. Right before Debbie's memorial service, which occurred about six weeks after Debbie's body was found, Amanda had a confidential interview with the investigators that put her on good terms with law enforcement once again. Amanda stated the Georgia Bureau of Investigation told her she was no longer being considered a suspect in the case. Regarding the $2,385 Debbie sent to Amanda through Venmo, Amanda said police initially froze her account, but once she was cleared, she had access to the money. On November the 18th, a little over two months after Debbie's body was found, the Habersham County Sheriff's investigators confirmed through a press release that Debbie's death was caused by suicide. The press release states, A detailed examination of all gathered information has enabled investigators to determine, based on factual evidence and data, that Miss Collier's death was self-inflicted. Furthermore, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation Medical Examiner's Office has determined the cause of death was inhalation of superheated gases, thermal injuries, and hydrocodone intoxication, and that the manner of death was suicide. Habersham County Sheriff's Office investigators met with the family members and discussed the specifics of the investigation prior to the distribution of this release. The Habersham County Sheriff's Office expressed their condolences to the friends and family of Debbie by saying, It is our hope and prayer that the findings of this investigation provide some form of closure and allow the healing process to begin. Habersham County Deputy Coroner Ken Franklin said, I'm glad it's over, but I'm sorry for the family and all they've had to go through. All of the questioning and suspicion and the things they've had to go through made it difficult for them to live a normal life. I feel sorry for them, and my prayers go with them. After the mystery behind Debbie's death had been solved and publicly announced, Amanda went on Facebook posting this message, I pray you can all leave my mama alone now. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts, please contact the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Text STRENGTH to the Crisis Text Line at 741-741 or go to 988lifeline.org. If you found this story compelling, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. And please leave a five-star review if you would like to show your support. Also, don't forget to hit the notification bell to stay up to date each time we reveal a new shocking case. Until next time, stay safe and keep your eyes peeled. You never know what's lurking.
in the shadows. <laughs>